This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of PlantYourself.com, the Big Change Program, and Well Start Health. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a passionate and persistent life. Today's guest, Dave Chase, is one of those quiet innovators who moves mountains through his vision, his energy, and just sheer persistence. And as you'll hear, with a healthy dose of trickster energy into the mix. Dave is one of the founders of Healthcare Rosetta, which is a nonprofit dedicated to accelerating, and I quote from their website, adoption of simple, practical, nonpartisan fixes to our healthcare system. So Dave has been a mover and shaker for a long time. He was a CEO and a co-founder of a company called Avado, which is a digital health company that was acquired by WebMD and Medscape. And Dave's life and career were rocketing along until he was really shaken by the deaths of 10 people who were very close to him over the span of just a few years. And he got to witness firsthand how the healthcare system failed them, draining their spirits and their wallets while not providing care or comfort. And as an entrepreneurial go-getter, Dave decided to do something about it. And given the messed up state of healthcare at the moment, he makes a startling claim. He says, healthcare is already fixed. In other words, we know what works and how to implement those fixes. On a small scale, everything that's needed is already in place somewhere. And it's our job to publicize and scale those fixes until they change the entire system. Which begs the question, if this is all so easy, then what's standing in our way? And as Dave writes in his masterful and infuriating book, The CEO's Guide to Restoring the American Dream, only three trillion things. And those tr three trillion things are, of course, the three trillion dollars spent annually on healthcare in the United States. And much of that money is misspent on ineffective and unnecessarily expensive treatments. So the book is a handbook for CEOs who are desperately trying to reduce their organization's healthcare costs, but it also reads like a crime thriller. Because on page after page, I found myself shocked at the perverse incentives that reinforce this crooked system. And this system costs lives, promotes suffering, and as the title of the book says, it is literally stealing the American dream of middle-class prosperity from an entire generation. Before we get to the interview, just a couple of quick things. One is my friend Jamie Friesen at Natural Vegan Club has uh, launched a, a line of wholesome, healthy, and sustainable bath and beauty products that are not only vegan, but are also handmade and packaged responsibly. I got a deodorant that was wrapped in cardboard, and it's a kind of a cool like a stick that you have to push up. So it didn't have all that plastic you're going to have to throw away afterwards. If you're interested, uh, I don't get any money from this, but I do have a tracking link so that we can see how many people from this show go visit. Just go to plantyourself.com slash natural vegan, and you can check out what they've got. He sent me a box that I'm really enjoying. Second thing, we're starting another cohort of the Big Change Program, this time combined with Well Start Health on May 14th. 2018. If you're interested, you could go to bigchangeprogram.com and read all about it, but you can't sign up there anymore. Instead, go to wellstarthealth.com slash program. There you can read the details. And 
From there, you can click the apply button at the bottom and sign up. There's no credit card handling up there, so you get to apply before we uh, do any of those financial transactions. You know, if you feel like this is your year to finally get healthy, to break free of cravings and addictions and any sort of behaviors that are not in line with your values, your goals and your priorities, the Big Change Program has helped a lot of people do that. It's a really robust ecosystem of daily videos, of calls, of texts, of live video group discussions, and of community. And the big differentiator is that we view living a healthy life as a set of skills, not as your character. So if it was your character, then there would be nothing we could do about it except just wish you had a better character, more you know, willpower, passion, motivation, stuff like that. But since it's learnable skills, you can learn them. And that's what the Big Change Program is all about. So if you're interested, go to wellstarthealth.com slash program and then read about it and click apply at the bottom. And if you like it and if you are accepted, then we will get hit the ground running on May 14th. Hey, this is a late-breaking edit. I posted this interview earlier today, and I just got a note from Dave Chase in my inbox saying, here's a secret link to download the book that Dave wrote, The CEO's Guide to Restoring the American Dream, for free as a PDF from their website. So you're ready for the link? It's healthrosetta.org slash friends. So gr go grab the PDF healthrosetta.org slash friends, read through it, read the intro, read the first chapter, read the conclusion. And of course, it would be super cool if you were to thank Dave Chase uh, for his time and appearance on this podcast by then buying the book with money. Okay, back to our regularly scheduled program. All right, time for today's interview. So let's talk about healthcare and how to restore the American dream without further ado. Dave Chase, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. My pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you wrote this book that I have just uh, finished reading for the second time, The CEO's Guide to Restoring the American Dream. And I read it because my CEO told me to read it. So I guess you've, you've nailed your target market. But honestly, I, I wouldn't have necessarily um, looked at the book or, or been interested in sort of the topic of sort of the, the minutia of healthcare finance and economics and benefits. But once I read it, it felt like one of the most important things that anyone who's interested in the health of, of our country and our planet could read. And that's kind of why I wanted to get you on the, on the phone to kind of bridge the gap between these really sort of esoteric topics and this hugely important behemoth, which is our, our healthcare system. Yeah, I have to agree. You know, I really come to the conclusion that, unfortunately, our status quo healthcare system has become the greatest immediate threat to, I believe, the well-being of our country and probably by the extension to the rest of the world. It's, it's that magnitude, and I think it's evident as you uh, start to connect the dots. Yeah, so, so uh, I'd love to start with your your journey to this world, because you didn't start out in healthcare, but it's probably why you're able to see it with such fresh eyes. Can you just talk a little bit about where, where you come from and what sort of eyes you, you brought to the issue? Well, I mean, I'm not on the clinical side, but I did start my career with 
uh, in consulting with uh, Accenture. And so I did spend time inside of a couple dozen different hospitals and then went on to uh, start Microsoft's healthcare uh, partner ecosystem. And, uh, you know, but it was really something where in some sense it could have been any industry, uh, you know, been in the tech side of the industry. Um, but at a personal level, what uh, happened was unfortunately by the time I was 35, I had 10 friends who were my age or younger who died. And, you know, each one of those is a gut punch for sure. Uh, but the last one was particularly brutal. You know, it was a friend that had been a very successful business executive. And she went through the cancer journey. And it was just a real testament to the the problems we have in our healthcare system. I and mean, the last time that I saw her, you know, she was in a hospital bed and frankly, she should have been sent home to die in peace uh, with her family and loved ones. And instead was, you know, hooked up to a bunch of uh, machines and tubes. And, you know, they were literally and metaphorically uh, sucking the life out of her medically and financially. And as I reflected back on that, you know, I realized that the system had failed her at every level. And frankly, I'd been a part of that system and realized, you know what, I've got to do something about that. And at the time, I didn't quite know what that was. Um, but as I, and I left healthcare for over a decade, um, but as I came back, um, I came to this real realization that, you know, some of what I shared earlier um, in terms of the magnitude of the problem, but I also found some good news and that that every structural fix that had was needed to address these brutal problems that we were had already been invented and proven and modestly scaled or replicated. And uh, by comparison to this dystopian system that we had created where, you know, the most passionate and smart people, you know, that I certainly grew up often became nurses and doctors. Um, and here we were spending all this money producing very average outcomes um, that, you know, it was just so sad to see what was going on. And by comparison, these people who had cracked the code, um, you know, that was practically utopia by comparison. And I sort of joked, this is just a marketing problem. Everybody would want that. Um, mm -hmm. If they could, it's actually much better for the patient. It's much um, less expensive. Um, and so, you know, it's just a marking problem. We just need to get the word out. And so that's really what put me on this journey and ultimately led me to write the book and I guess really catalyze this movement that, uh, you know, I'm on right now.
Right. And so, well, the first bit of marketing that hit me was right up at the beginning of the book where you write, I think it's a, a chapter heading, we have gone to war for far less. Can you talk about what what you're talking about there? What is what is the the this that uh, that wars, you know, have have underperformed in terms of their their impact on our on our on our lives? Well, in terms of, I mean, if you break down, you know, that, um, that chapter, you know, I go through, you know, what were those things that, um, you know, are the status quo that are really hitting us hard? I mean, the one that I have a particular uh, focus on is uh what it's doing to our future and what it's doing to our kids and education. And, you know, if some other country was doing what healthcare is doing to our kids in terms of stealing opportunity, uh, stealing funding, I mean, it's so bad that uh, Bill Gates devoted an entire Ted talk um, to how healthcare is devastating uh, education funding. You know, if if some other country was doing that, we would go to war. And if you look at uh, the magnitude of harm from uh, overtreatment and misdiagnosis because of um, really kind of systemic issues in terms of the incentive system and all that, these are things that, you know, and, and I think I, my name's Dave, I had a top 10 list. I think I went through 10 items of, you know, that are things that are really devastating um, our country and our well-being. Um, they're all there. Um, and, you know, I think when you put it in those terms, it's like there's a sense of urgency that we really have to uh, apply. I mean, you, you think about it, you know, we're a country of problem solvers and we're a country of people who want to see the right thing done, you know, I know that if you, you know, there was some group of adults that you saw um, were stealing from, you know, kids in a park, you know, you'd, you'd step in and do something about it. Well, that's basically what's going on at a large scale is we're massively, um, you know, stealing from our kids, not only from today and what they um, you know, what opportunities they have, um, but also in the future. You know, one of the sort of light bulb moments for me was when I was, um, it was actually a, shortly after the time my friend passed away that I mentioned earlier, where some kid from a high school came up to me and was selling chocolate bars to raise money for uh, some school fundraiser. And I thought, oh, it was great. You know, are you planning some, you know, band trip, you know, or something like that, some kind of extracurricular type of activity? Um, and uh, but no, <laughs> they said, no, we're, we're raising money for um, some science lab supplies, you know, that we don't have for our, our science department. And I was just sitting there going, what? this is crazy. Like taxes paid for that when I was a kid. Um, you know, why are we having to have kids, you know, sell candy bars 
to raise money. And so, you know, I was one of those um, kids, you know, growing up that uh, asked why a lot to get at the root cause um, of anything. You ask why five times, you get to the root cause of it. And every time I did that, it kept coming back to the way we purchase healthcare is incredibly ineffective. Um, and just one facet of that, um, if you look at where, you know, every dollar, you know, if you break out where every dollar goes, only about 15 to 25 cents of every dollar goes to the real value creators in healthcare, the nurses and doctors. And, you know, we squander dollars in all kinds of other areas in terms of uh, fraud, waste, abuse, what we call pricing failure, where there's no correlation between what we pay and the value we get, um, over-treatment, misdiagnosis. I mean, there's just a whole bunch of things that uh, just we squandered dollars right and left. And so, right. so you there know, was, we all there was pay one, for that. There was one graphic in the book on page 49 that comes from uh, David Goldhill's book, Catastrophic Care, and it really shocked me. It's the iceberg picture yep. where showing that a, a millennial um, who gets a good has a good job, works un, until she's 65, dies at 80, makes ends up making one hundred eighty thousand dollars a year um, that basically half of her entire total lifetime income will go to pay for health care, both the visible, yep. the, the deductibles out of pocket, the insurance premiums and then the hidden through the employer premiums, taxes, and federal and state taxes. So you just you just mentioned a bunch of of things that that contribute to this. But um, like you say, the root cause is this incredibly inefficient purchasing system. And there's 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 that and overtreatment. So can, can you talk about first about the um, the purchasing system? I was real interested in your the the history of sort of where you see this beginning after World War II. Can you talk a little bit about how we got to where we are. Yeah, you know, and the, the other thing that's striking with that graph is that's actually the optimistic view that that healthcare costs only grow at half the rate of inflation, which doesn't happen too often. So it actually grows at the rate of inflation, which it usually outpaces. It's two thirds of the lifetime earnings. So it's it's even worse. But in terms of the the history uh, it does go back to World War II when there were uh, uh, wage controls and there was a loophole that employers had where uh, the health benefits weren't included in that. So that was one way that some employers started to differentiate uh, their offers and then that was codified uh, into our tax law. And it is the single biggest tax break in the entire, uh, you know, tax system is the employer, um, you know, uh, health care tax exemption. And so that has really fueled the system. And it's created a disconnect between uh, the people who receive the care and how all the payments flow. So there are a lot of issues around that. Um, but it is what we have today. Um, and interestingly, uh, as I spend time in other countries, in some ways, um, as in the U.S., the government's getting progressively more involved, you know, with having had 
employers driving a lot of it for non elderly, non low income. Uh, in other countries, it's kind of the other way. Now, increasingly, um, employers are getting more involved. If you look at places like Canada, uh, sort of, you know, the Canadian Medicare, sort of like our Medicare, where it doesn't cover um, things like uh, vision and dental and mental health and some other things. So you see employers doing that. But that's a big backdrop on our system is this sort of third or fourth party payment system. Um, and that's created a disconnect where um, most people don't realize that what's driving 95% of the 20-year-long wage stagnation and decline in America uh, is healthcare. You know, employers are spending a lot more money on employees than they did 20 years ago, but the problem is all the dollars have gone to to healthcare. Um, and so it doesn't feel like the employer's spending more, even though they are. And so it's created this real problem, you know, where the math just doesn't work. You know, today you've got 60% of the workforce makes $20 an hour or less. The average family of four premiums are over $20,000, um, largely because of health care costs. Uh, over half of households have less than $1,000 in savings. Today, over half the workforce has over a thousand dollar deductible. So you basically you're a bad stub toe away from uh, financial ruin in the way the system has been developed and just kind of letting things get out of control. And so I do believe it's reached a breaking point. That's why you see, you know, every day scores of employers are saying, wait a second, you know, we can only shove so much onto the back of the employees back that's run its course. I mean, that's kind of been the blunt instrument way of, of dealing with it is just say, oh, we need to give them, you know, employees skin in the game. Well, it's kind of more like they've got kidney in the game now, mm. um, you know, in terms of how much you can push onto their backs. And, um, you know, it's, it just, you can't, <laughs> I mean, we've, we've gone past, I think, any reasonable bounds. And, you know, certainly I'm all a big believer in patient empowerment and consumer engagement and all those kinds of things. But you have to, you know, the math just doesn't work the way it is right now. Right. Well, so so I can see like when, you know, when my kids were little and I would say, you know, go to the candy store, go to the toy store and get whatever you want, that that would be a recipe for disaster because they had no sense of how much things cost and how much they could have and how much they would enjoy, you know, better to err on the side of more rather than less. And that's kind of how you represent the the American consumer uh, as as enticed by the healthcare system that 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 more is better. You know, you said if you had a, if you have back pain, you'll do whatever you can to get rid of it, including if your doctor says surgery and opioids. Um, what you know, what can we do? about that kind of uh, misaligned incentives where people are getting as much as they can, even though most much, much of it is unnecessary or overkill or even harmful? Well, a big part of it is uh, what we do is we ration choices. You know, a lot of times people talk about rationing care. Um, what we do in the system where we've badly undermined our primary care system, you know, take that back pain example. 
if you're told, you know, if you have what feels like a knife in your back, and I've been there, I can definitely relate to that. And you're told the only way to fix that is to, you know, either take this opioid or get this, uh, you know, lumbar fusion and uh, then followed by a bunch of opioids, you know, that you're going to leave the hospital with. Um, you know, you do that. And a lot of people do. Well, you know, Starbucks, Virginia Mason, they did a study of all the, the spinal procedures that were done. 90% of them didn't help at all. PT would have been more effective. And so when you don't ration choices, and this is what a good primary care setting um, avoids, is you actually lay out, hey, here's the options, here's what's going on, um, and, you know, why you're feeling this, this pain. And, uh, you know, you could mask it in the short term, you know, with some opioid, but the problem didn't magically disappear. And, of course, there's the whole risk of becoming addicted. And so that's one of the key ways where you have uh, a non-rush, non-financially conflicted primary care uh, setting. And, uh, you know, something like that, it may be PT is, is one of the best ways to address that. Um, you know, obviously it's going to vary a little bit from one situ situation or not to another. But that's a good example where... Uh, smart employers are doing this. Michelin, you know, they put in a proper musculoskeletal management program. So far, they're, they've gotten about a third of the employees that they'd like to get into the program, um, into it so far. And that's already had a very substantial impact on overall company profitability, if you can believe that. Just getting a proper musculoskeletal management program. And uh, so they keep people out of harm's way. That saves tremendous amounts of money. Um, and uh, people avoid that risk of getting hooked on opioids. And uh, it makes all the difference in the world when you uh, you get that proper uh, program in place. Gotcha. So I think we can, we can understand that, you know, the consumer can be taught to purchase things that are in alignment with their goals and values. The employer wants to keep costs down and have a healthy workforce. But I kind of always thought that the insurance companies had an incentive to keep people healthy. Like I thought about, you know, like flood or fire insurance, you pay your premium and the less flood or fire damage there is, the more the insurance company gets to keep. And I kind of innocently thought that's how it worked with healthcare. And so insurance companies would naturally push all the levers they could to get people healthy and to avoid these costs. But apparently health insurance doesn't work like that, right? It doesn't. Um, you know, if you think about the examples you gave, um, you know, like your house and your, your homeowner's insurance, um, you know, we don't insure everything. We insure against something catastrophic like a fire. Um, but you know, we don't pull out our state farm card, um, you know, when it comes time to paint our house or replace a dishwasher or, you know, do spring cleaning or something like that. Um, we've had the system where we try to in, you know, use the insurance infrastructure for everything imaginable in healthcare. And, you know, if you like dealing with and paying for, 
you know, the 40% insurance bureaucracy tax, you know, go for it. Um, but uh, that just doesn't um, work well, you know, for this. And, and then what on top of that, one of the things that um, really um, accelerated this dynamic where, you know, it's like you said, it's kind of counterintuitive where you would think the insurance companies, um, you know, might actually want to do the equivalent of avoiding the, the house fire. Um, you know, that w- when the Affordable Care Act was passed, there was this clause in there called medical loss ratio. It basically said that um, for every premium dollar that was collected, you have to s- uh, pay out 80 or 85 cents on the dollar, depending on the size of employer or size of plan. Um, and like that sounded good as a political soundbite. Oh, make those insurance companies pay for healthcare. Um, but what that did instead was really just, um, you know, kind of very obvious. I mean, I was out of the industry for over a decade and I learned about this as I came back in and it was really the first thing I wrote about. Um, June 4, 2010 in the Huffington Post, you could Google health insurance and bunker buster. And I predicted because of this medical loss ratio that premiums would go up 50% because what they did was they told the insurance companies you could only make um, a 15% margin, you know, on every dollar. And so if you're a publicly held insurance company, you've told Wall Street you're going to increase profits say 15% every year um, and your margin percentage is capped, the only way you can make that happen is to ensure, you know, the denominator in that calculation goes up. Um, And so you want to do everything possible to ensure that overall costs go up. Um, And so there's this convenient partnership between the hospitals and the health plans to have costs go up and up and up. Um, because that ensures their profits can go up. And so that's exactly what played out. I mean, I actually undershot it. I think there was a thing came out in the last week or two that said rates have gone up 60% um, since then on a blended rate. Um, and, you know, that's that's a thing that's been kind of non-obvious. Like it, it sounded good politically, you know, to do that. But just if you understand shareholder fiduciary duty, you know, they, you know, one insurance exec off the record told me, he goes, Dave, we are legally required to facilitate price gouging, you know, by the hospitals, basically like, whoa, that's a pretty uh, stark statement, but that's basically what's happened. So this this is sort of like a a Marx Brothers routine, right? Where, where, you know, you, you make so little on each transaction you know, it's like you've, you've got to do millions of them just to break even. Yep. Yep. Right. That's that, pretty that, much to, what's happened. And so they and so they actually and they get paid not they don't get just get paid a premium and then have to pay out as as claims arise. They get paid on a percentage of the claims. Well, basically. Yeah, indirectly, yes. Um, so they can they're legally mandated to to um, only, um, get basically a 15% margin on those dollars. So if they 
and let's say they collect just to use a little bigger number, um, but not a massive number, they collect a million dollars of premiums. They have to pay out $850,000 in claims or else let's say they only paid out um, 750,000 in medical claims. They have to rebate a hundred thousand back. Um, like I said, that kind of sounds good in theory. Well, in practice, they're not going to let that happen unless they totally goof up. What they're going to do is say, Oh, well, you know, last year we paid out 850,000. So we made $150,000 in profit using, you know, these fictitious examples dollars. Well, you know, it's not acceptable to only make 150,000 next year, even though the underlying costs of healthcare haven't changed in the last year, we need to make sure that <laughs> they go up. Mm-hmm. And so we need to make sure that we see the total uh, premiums go to say 1.1 million or 1.2 million or whatever, so that <laughs> the total dollars we make in profit you know, in that example, 150,000 before, um, it goes up. If we want that to go up to 200,000, we need to make sure the overall premium dollars go up and, um, you know, basically make it work out, you know, math wise that way. So, so let's say I'm hired by one of the big insurance companies, Aetna, Cigna, U.S. Healthcare to run their wellness program right? Blue Cross, they all have these wellness programs, you can go online, you can, you know, chat with nurses, you can get advice about diet and exercise and stuff. And let's say, I'm my heart's in the right place, I really want to get people well. And my program is phenomenally successful beyond anything that's ever seen in wellness. I'm working against my company's interests by by getting people so well that they, they, they let's say, in a, in a crazy world, I reduce the claims to 100,000 instead of a million, then what, what happens? What's the financial uh, ramifications for the company if I'm that successful in my wellness program? Yeah, in that example, so they were legally required to pay out $850,000 out of those million dollars in claims, but they only paid out 100,000, then they would have to rebate uh, $750,000 um, to their members. Um, and so they don't, they don't get a benefit from that. Um, and, uh, you know, in theory, you know, the consumer does, well, they're not going to really want that to happen, you know, because not only did their profits not go up, but they didn't, um, you know, they didn't really gain anything on a pure financial, um, basis in that scenario. Right. And then the following year, you might say, well, they, they should only collect, you know, 125,000 if they're only going to be paying out a million. So now their profits are, are still 15%, yep. but they're shrunk. So it's so yep. actual wellness is going in the wrong direction for the insurance company. Yeah, yeah. And, and the, you know, and, and uh, the perception of them as the insurance company, I mean, the, um, I mean, I guess they, they sort of are in the individual market. Um, but if you think about uh, most of us, if we're not elderly or we're not low income, we get our benefits through our job. And uh, so the real quote unquote insurance company is actually the employer. They happen to use these insurance companies to process claims, but they're the ones who are taking on financial risk. They're taking on directly 
in a very direct way when they're self-insured, which is two-thirds of the workforce are in these self-insured plans. So again, a Blue Cross may process the claim, but it's actually the employer's money. Um, but even when it's so-called fully insured, I can assure you that if you're Acme Corp and uh, you know the carrier paid out you know a million one in claims and they only collected a million dollars from you, you're going to get whacked the next year. So you've really already been taking on the financial risk anyway. Um, and so the real insurance company, if you will, isn't the so-called insurance companies, it's the employers. And that's really what, you know, the CEOs and CFOs are waking up to. It's like, look, we're, we're, you know, we can debate till the cows come home, whether employer-based insurance um, makes sense or not, but it is the reality. And despite what the framers of the Affordable Care Act thought, you know, they were, if you look at the estimates on uninsured rates and all that, in aggregate, they were actually quite accurate. You know, the CBO numbers, where they got it off was the individual market numbers weren't as big because they were expecting more employers to drop insurance. In reality, it went the other direction. Um, the rate of employers providing insurance actually went up. Um, and so it is a reality that probably isn't going to go away anytime real soon, particularly since the whole tax code really advantages that, that model. Right. So your book is for the CEO, but you know, you, you, you talk about sort of anyone with fiduciary responsibility at, at a company and you point out that like, there's no other line item where every year you get worse and worse quality for more and more money. Like if I think about tech, or office supplies, or travel, or just about anything else. I just there's this expectation that things are getting better, and yep. th they're going to get cheaper. Like the computer I have in front of me, I, I roughly you know, every five years I pay twenty five hundred dollars for a computer, and you know it started in nineteen eighty seven with a with a Mac SE, Macintosh SE, and now I've got the twenty seven inch iMac with you know five K resolution and Retina whatever. And it just keeps getting better and better. But with healthcare, there's something that um, you call the, the the annual kabuki dance that ever that that we've just come to expect. Can you talk a little bit about about how that works? Yeah, um, yeah. This get less, pay more deal that we've become <clears throat> accustomed to for the last 20 years. Um, you know, it's like we went from that you know Mac Daddy you know, Mac that you have. And, you know, each year we, we go from, you know, that to, you know, we, we've got a DOS, you know, based health plan now, <laughs> you know, where we, we, uh, you know, in terms of the actual experience, it's just gotten worse and worse and worse. Um, and so, yeah, it, that's been the dynamic, unfortunately, where we just have to, um, uh, pay more seemingly, um, even though, you know, you may remember the second chapter in the book, I lay out that in the real market, you know, the, and the real market is defined by where there's direct contracts, which more and more employers are doing between providers and their organizations or the cash-based market, <clears throat> which has grown 
hugely as there's been high deductibles and uninsured. There's actually a, quite a large cash-based economy in healthcare. Um, in the real market, prices have been flat for at least five years. Um, in the rigged market, which most people exist in, there's <clears throat> all these drivers to have costs go up and create what's you know, inside the industry they call medical trends. So they create this kabuki dance, as we say, where they say, oh, trend was 15% um, because of all these factors, uh, one of which is enabling large-scale fraud to happen because um, that's also in their financial interests. Um, and uh, what we're such good guys, our rates, quote, only went up 11%. Um, and so that's kind of part of the, like, oh, well, I guess that's as good as it can get. You know, I'm stuck. I'm not happy about it. But boy, you know, at least it's not 15%, you know. And, you know, that's part of the crazy thing that people have become accustomed to, even though you look at it and say, what actually changed? Are the doctors making way more? The nurses making way more? No. About the only area that's really significantly different over the last 10 years is the so-called specialty drug categories. Um, but other than that, you know, doctors and nurses aren't paid you know, really differently than they were 10 years ago or whenever. Um, and so it's just all part of that kabuki dance to make it look like um, costs have gone way up, even though they actually haven't. Um, so, but uh, they, they managed to do a good job of making you believe that. Yeah. So to, so to help me understand this, I have in front of me a, a coupon, a mailer that I got from our local uh, vacuum cleaner supply store. And it says tune-up special, $32.00 for vacuum cleaner service. And it says, must present coupon at time of drop-off. <laughs> and so I'm thinking, like, what, what it should be is present it after we've given you the bill, and then we'll take 32% off of that. But if I present at the time of drop-off, that's sort of like the kabuki dance, right? They'll say, well, so now we're going to raise the rate by, by 32%, then we'll lop 32% off and you'll be happy. But you didn't know what the original <laughs> basis of the service was. Right, right, right. I can I, I can give you a ninety nine percent discount on anything if you let me pick the denominator in that calculation, right? <laughs> so you, you have a chapter on the seven tricks. I think that was also a uh, an article of yours that I read online. Um, one of them just floored me, um, and I'm just going to keep bringing it up at cocktail parties un until I get uninvited. Which was the story of uh, this drug called Duexis. Can you talk about yep. that? Yeah, it's crazy. Um, trying to remember the specific uh, over-the-counter drugs, but basically what it does is they take two um, uh, generic over-the-counter uh, Yeah, it was, it was Motrin, Motrin and Pepsid. Yeah, Motrin and Pepsid. And, you know, whatever that would cost, which is not much, um, they put it into one pill <clears throat> And um, charge, you know, hundreds of, you know, hundred times more um, and say that's some amazing innovation that, you know, rather than spending, you know, whatever, $24, you're spending $3,000. Um, and that's another example where that's where the, you know, if the insurance companies were really watching your dollars and the, you know, one of the um, arms of the, often it's an arm of insurance companies 
so-called pharmacy benefit managers, um, they if they were actually concerned about your bottom line, they would never approve that. Um, but because they get a margin and because there's kickbacks that that happen, they're called rebates that often then don't go back to the the actual you know one who's picking up the bill. That's one of the ways those have become wildly profitable companies. Um, but yeah, that's exactly what they do. And there's examples up and down the line where these things that don't make a lick of difference in terms of your health outcomes, they can suddenly charge a hundred times more uh, than what they did previously. Right. So I, I want to make sure we end with with good news. And in, in order to do that, so this you know this podcast is essentially a lifestyle podcast to help people be be happier and healthier and and more fulfilled and live on a on a healthier planet. And we talk a lot about lifestyle and lifestyle medicine. And I've just joined a startup that, you know, that reverses disease, chronic disease through through education and lifestyle. And your book, it felt like put that into a broader context. Can you talk a little bit about how you see sort of the you know, primary care, pre-primary care lifestyle as fitting in to this to this movement to rationalize healthcare? Yeah, I mean, what you see the smart employers do, you know, if I had to, to, you know, sort of sum it all up, what they do is they make good decisions, free or near free for their employees, and they make bad decisions expensive. And one of the, the good decisions is you get things like proper primary care, which we've done virtually everything to undermine primary care in this country where when you have proper primary care, like what my family has, my parents have, and it's actually less expensive than the status quo system, uh, they can address 92% of the issues that people come into the healthcare system for. And so it's great, you know, where um, there's really, you know, kind of three key ways that these things deliver value. One is they can just address the issues people come in for, the so-called acute episodes. Rather than you forcing to go to the ER or some urgent care clinic, they can address it there. It might be a broken arm, might be some, uh, you know, urinary tract infection, whatever it might be. Um, so number one, they can address those acute episodes. Number two, they are designed to kind of go upstream and do good uh, prevention, you know, make sure that, you know, you have lifestyle changes and things like that that are so incredibly important. You have health coaches are incredibly effective there. Um, and then the third piece of it is there's sort of like your Sherpa, you know, where if you have some medical complexity and, you know, say if you're, you know, running a health plan for an employer, uh, you typically find six to eight percent of the employees consume eighty percent of the dollars in a given year, and it's usually these these uh, more complex situations. And so, the good primary care setting they can help you navigate that complex situation. Because a lot of times, people when they're in that situation, they don't have just one thing; they may have multiple things. And our healthcare system tends to treat you like a series of disconnected body parts versus you're actually one, you know, being. Mm -hmm. And so they can help you weigh out the different options of 
should I do this approach or that approach? Which doctors, which medical centers should I go to? Um, those are the things that can be incredibly helpful to keep you out of harm's way because there are certain centers where they do overtreat far more. They don't get the diagnosis right. I mean, you see, I think it was in chapter 12, I've laid out how the rates of misdiagnosis for complex conditions like oncology and neurology and so on um, range between 25 and 67%. So, you know, even if you had the best surgeon or oncologist in the world, but if you have the, you know, it wouldn't matter if you have the wrong diagnosis. And so, you know, a good primary care team helps you get to those people that they would send not only their patients to, but their own family members to. So those are things that's really important. And if you look at how we will rebuild and how we are rebuilding brick by brick, the healthcare system, you see places like Denver and you see places like Seattle where you now have proper primary care available broadly enough in that, that uh, metropolitan area um, and keep you away from these financially conflicted kind of what I call milk in the back of the store primary care where they're just sort of designed to churn you in and out so you get, get you to the high margin stuff. So those things are really important. Gotcha. So you, you uh, co-founded an organization right, called Health Rosetta, I think is it at healthrosetta.org, that is, is kind of a, a compendium of all these best practices. And one of the things you keep saying in the book is we don't need to figure this out. We already know what to do. We, we already can see all the right things to do. We just need to put them together, educate people on using them and scale them. Um, can you talk a little bit about the Health Rosetta and who who should be interested in it and, and, and how it could benefit them? Yeah. I mean, really everybody should be, I mean, we are, it, the health Rosetta isn't meant to be employer specific or even U S specific, although the U S employer markets where we're started, because, you know, if you use a triage metaphor, you know, it's the sickest patient, you know, it's what's driving, um, 20 years of wage stagnation and decline, you know, it's at the root of, why we have populism in this country. And, you know, anytime when there's something crazy going on in the news or just about any time I'll tweet, you know, confused by the news. And I kind of run through the, the numbers I ran through huh. before. So it's been um, basic, basically, basically the uh, that, it's all, it's all, you know, like breaking bad was all about poor health care. It's a, so every, yeah, every yeah. crime story and uh, political mayhem is at, at its root has this, this giant suck on our economy and our, and our vitality. It, Definitely. And it's, it's hugely impacted by these things. So it's basically a blueprint, you know, for how to purchase healthcare and ultimately deliver healthcare smart. The analogy that I use that people are familiar with a lot of times is uh, LEED, LEED certified buildings. You may have seen, you know, they took green building practices from a fringe concept 20 years ago to, you know, you could hate the environment today and you'd still follow those practices. And so, you know, that certified uh, professionals and that certified buildings. So Health Rosetta is basically, you know, designed in a similar way, certifying different health plans and health plan components. And, uh, you know, kind of like real estate where it wasn't like magically one day all the old buildings were raised and the next day they were magically built green. 
you know, it takes a while for something as entrenched as the built infrastructure or healthcare to ripple through, even though there was a lot of activity throughout the 20 years. And so that's basically what we're doing is kind of following that template and saying, hey, you know, if you are tired of, um, you know, getting really poor results for your investment and a poor experience, or you're, you know, you're a healthcare delivery organization, you want to be really built for the future, you know, this gives you the the kind of roadmap or travel tips on how to to go through that journey, you know, so you get to this destination that is just far, far better. Gotcha. I don't know how much time you have left. I know we're, we're at the end of our allotted time. I did want to ask you, um, first of all, to tell the story of Harris Rosen, because that's like so inspiring, especially the community parts of that. Um, and I also wanted to ask you about the, the big heist. Do you have time for both of sure. those? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm good on time. No problem. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. So, yeah, Harris Rosen, uh, he was like any other, you know, entrepreneur running an organization. In his case, it was a hotel company and was seeing what the healthcare costs were doing to his business and to his people. And just basically before there was Health Rosetta, he was doing Health Rosetta, which he was doing some of the things we talked about, like proper primary care. If you fast forward, look at what he has done. It's remarkable. So today, despite having a very challenging workforce from kind of a health burden perspective, you know, where just as one example, 56% of their pregnancies are categorized high risk. You know, that can normally be a budget buster for companies. They, despite that, they spend 55% less per capita on health benefits than a typical employer, not by having really horrible benefits. They have the best benefits package I've heard of any company in America, where not only do they have great health benefits, you know, you have access to awesome primary care for free. But on top of that, you know, it's largely an hourly workforce workforce. Um, and uh, they, they pay, you know, you can go to the primary care clinic on the clock and they'll even transport you there if you don't have transportation because um, they really believe in it. And um, then in a bunch of other great things on the health benefit side, but then they take, money that would have otherwise been sort of frittered away and squandered in healthcare in some of the ways we described um, and have created the best benefits package in the country where they also pay for the employees college education and the employees kids college education. If you can believe that. Um, and you can imagine how low turnover is at that organization. Um, and if that wasn't enough, they still have so much money compared to certain, you know, most other companies that they adopted a nearby crime ridden community and said, you know what, we're going to invest in this community. We're going to invest in daycare, pre-K, after school programs. So far, 450 college educations. During that time, crime went down 62%, I believe. Um, and high school graduation rates went from 45% to virtually 100% um, because of that. And the total investment in that community was less than 5% oh, 
of what they save compared to other employers. And so they've since adopted a neighborhood five times that size and they're doing the same thing. And so it shows what's possible, not only for one employer, but then by the community. And, you know, they are showing that the way this thing gets fixed is not waiting for the Calvary from DC. You know, that's not going to happen. I think we have decades of evidence, both parties being in full control at different times. Um, Healthcare is getting solved community by community, where that community is an employee, a union, a particular town. Um, so, yeah, it's really remarkable what they've done. Yeah. And that story more than any really hit home for me. Why? Why? You know, this is really the the citizen's guide, the human's guide to restoring the American dream is all, all of us can can agitate at some level, can talk about it with our neighbors at cocktail parties, can just point out the craziness and idiocy of the current situation, which most of us just take for granted and don't even think, oh, they're, you know, yeah, this sucks, but they don't think that there could be a better way or that we already know what it is, which I guess bring, brings us to this really fascinating project that I heard you speak about on uh, several other podcasts, The Big Heist. What's what's that about? Yeah, uh, The Big Heist um, sort of riffs off of uh, my belief that this massive um, transfer of wealth from the working and middle class that's happened over the last 20 plus years, where you know they basically seen no wage increases during that time, um, and yet healthcare costs continue to go up, and their out of pocket continues to go up, and so you know it's there was a graph I have in the book out of a Wall Street Journal article that shows that, uh, you know, literally it's coming out of families um, having to spend less on food, less on clothing, less on housing, less on transportation. So I call it the greatest heist in American history because of this massive wealth transfer from the working and middle class to this wildly underperforming healthcare system. And though the industry would like you to believe um, that, Solving healthcare is like trying to solve Middle East peace. That's what a lot of people tend to think. Um, it's just not the case. And so, what the the big heist is is meant to create that sort of moment of awakening that when you look at other great societal challenges that have faced our country, they almost always get solved bottom up. You know, whether it's things like civil rights or better food or um, energy independence, climate change, whatever it might be, these things always get solved bottom up. And there's these movements that go on. So, you know, we're building this movement. It's, it's getting ahead of steam. Um, and then it, there's this sort of moment of awakening that media and film have a tendency to provide that catalyzing event. So you think about Films like The Inconvenient Truth, Super Size Me, Food, Inc., or you think about um, uh, Selma. You know, Selma tended to be the event that got on the evening news and the morning newspapers that sort of woke up the rest of America at what was going on and changed the zeitgeist. And so um, the big heist is, you know, that's the, the big goal is to, by the time this this movement is really, you know, picking up steam. Um, you then want to 
turbocharge it and take it to the next level. And so that's our big challenge is create a wildly entertaining film that stands on its own. You know, you want to watch it independent of, you know, some wonky healthcare guy talking. Um, and then you watch it at a certain point, like what the heck, you know, a um, little bit like what you might've said with uh, the big short. Uh-huh. So, you know, it's sort of like the big short for healthcare um, where it will unpack what is actually going on here. Um, and, uh, but really it's about, you know, I think you mentioned earlier, you know, the book is about not getting you depressed. It's creating hope and activating people. And so, you know, by the time you walk out of that film and you say, gosh, I'm a faith-based leader. What should I do? I'm a union-based leader. What should I do? I'm a PTA leader. What should I do? I'm a mom. What should I do? I'm a CEO. What should I do? Um, There'll be clear calls to action, clear templates to follow um, that you can then solve healthcare in your community um, because that's where health starts. Health doesn't start in a pill or at a hospital. It starts at home and mom, you know, that's the foundation of health. And the closer you are to sort of home and mom, you know, the closer you are to health. Um, and we somehow have lost sight of that. And so that's really the, the film is meant to shine a light on that in a way that, you know, will hopefully be entertaining and awakening. Wow. That's, that's, uh, be amazing. Um, do you have a sense of like a scene or a, a conceit that the movie will, cause it's, it's hard for me to picture like taking this thing and making it, you know, understandable and entertaining, um, you know, part, partly. And one, one, one of the, one of the things I wanted to, to add to that is that you make it real clear that, um, the doctors, healthcare professionals and nurses are not the enemy here. In fact, they're, they're some of our biggest victims. So this isn't about like, you know, burning doctors at the stake or saying that they're, you know, that they're a bunch of greedy people, um, but that they're, they're caught up in the system. So, but, but, uh, like what's a, what's a scene or an idea that you're thinking of that could really could sort of make it clear how crazy the situation is and how things could be different. Can you, is there anything you can, you can share at this point? Absolutely. Um, and I'll, I'll caveat this with, uh, I'm no Brad, Brad Pitt, and it took him 10 years to get his last film out. Uh, and so the way you tell these stories and finance them, you know, that's going to change probably multiple times between now and when the film comes out. But I'll give you a very topical example. Um, and it's, it's at the heart of the next book um, that I'm uh, writing. And that is the intersection of back pain and the opioid crisis. 80% of us will have an acute back pain uh, issue. Just about anybody can understand what that's about. And the opioid crisis has become the largest public health crisis in 100 years. And if you look at one of the bigger on-ramps to the opioid crisis, it's the, the disastrous way that we address back pain in this country. And so what we're looking for is something that represents a microcosm of the larger dysfunction. And unfortunately, what I've found with the opioid crisis 
is it is not an anomaly at all. It's actually the perfectly logical and tragic byproduct of a catastrophically dysfunctional system. And so I really break that down in this next book. Say there's 12 major drivers of the opioid crisis. Unfortunately, the media and the government has greatly oversimplified it, and so we'll never get to a solution if you don't fully understand uh, the problem. You know, every addict needs an enabler, and the key enabler on 11 of the 12 major drivers of the opioid crisis are employers. When you think about it, who's impacted by the opioid crisis? Overwhelmingly, it's working-age people and their dependents. Well, who's paid for that? Our benefits. So this is a self-inflicted wound um, by our wildly underperforming healthcare system. And like you said, it's not about um, the nurses and the doctors are more victims and also heroes in this than anything. Um, and there's all kinds of crazy things that we've done that have created this toxic brew um, that have created the, the opioid crisis. And so that would be something where if you unpack, um, you know, this scene where, um, you know, I was talking to some folks in Pennsylvania that had a huge issue, incredibly common, uh, chain of events is, um, somebody has a back issue, you know, might be a workplace injury, you know, it could just be, you know, they could be a lawyer, you know, I mean, it's not something that's limited to blue collar um, roles. Um, and then they get non-evidence-based uh, treatments, which is frankly the rule, not the exception when it comes to back pain. So they get an opioid, they get a, a back procedure they never should have had, some surgery, uh, and then they, they uh, you know, get prescribed opioids on their way out. Um, and... Uh, and then what happens is some subset of those people, I think it's after three days, one in six people will get addicted following doctor's orders. And then they get addicted. Then they have a problem at work. Then they lose their job. And then this gnarly spiral happens where some get incarcerated, some, you know, you know, less innocuous, you know, they go on Medicaid and that costs us, um, you know, some will, end up moving to street drugs because uh, that's cheaper and more available to them. And consequently, they may get hepatitis C. And it's just this mm. terrible spiral uh, that happens. Um, and this happens time and time and time again. And um, the estimate is that there, of the 3 million nurses, there's 300,000 who are high-function addicts. You know, these aren't people that are sort of stereotypical, you know, what you see on the news and, you know, what's going on in, you know, whatever some town in West Virginia. I mean, that's real, too. But most of the addicts, you don't actually see them in an obvious way. They're high function addicts. Um, nurses being a case example of that where they've got very physically and emotionally draining jobs and they're often paid hourly. So there's a lot of pressure to get back to work and they're understaffed. Um, and so you have, and they have frankly easy access to the medications as well, which doesn't help. And so that is the most trusted profession and, and for good reason. They, you know, the nurses particularly care for us in our most vulnerable moments and we just do a terrible job supporting them. 
um, in this whole process. Mm -hmm. And the environment therein um, is really at the apex of these types of issues. Yeah. So I feel like just poking at that chain of events a little bit to kind of question what we, what I what I said and you agreed with that the, that you know doctors especially are are victims here. So it doesn't you know it takes me ten minutes to go on PubMed without any sort of medical training to look and see that what they're doing is not evidence based. I can go to the nnt.com or or any number, you know, Cochrane Collaboration or any of these places and do a quick search and realize that most of the, uh, the spinal fusion, the, the, the drug treatments are not nearly as effective as, as lifestyle, as PT. So how are doctors like blameless here if they're the ones prescribing these non-evidence-based treatments and, and prescribing the drugs? Is it just they don't, they don't know any better? They're discouraged from looking? There's, you know, they'll get sued or or slapped by the insurance company if they don't play ball. What what what's going on with them? Why can't why can't we blame them? Well, I'm not saying that there's zero percent blame, you know, on doctors. There are certainly some uh, who are directly perpetuating uh, that, um, but the, the majority aren't. Once they learn, you know, in primary care. Um, and, you know, doctors were told for a long time that these were non-addictive um, medications, and and then they were a combination of forces were really put pressure on them to prescribe because there was um, this whole movement around uh, what they call pain as a fifth vital sign, where it was like you know your temperature and your blood pressure and so on. Um, and then, um, so they really were told to, you know, cause probably we'd for a time, we'd probably under treated pain. And then they're like, you know, if you wanted to maintain your accreditation to the hospital, you had to do that. And so then there was pressure put on the doctors to do that. And on top of that, they would have a lot of pressure put on by their administration around patient satisfaction scores. And so it is, it takes less time and less, you know, pushback from the patients to just give people a pill. Cause a lot of times, you know, advertising works and, you know, Americans are been taught um, that there's a magic pill for everything. So they're getting a lot of pressure there. Um, and, and, you know, so those are factors is also lots of pressure um, to get people in and out, um, you know, to hit so-called productivity targets. And you couple that with some of the other factors where patients a lot of times are looking for these uh, medications because they think that's the only way that their pain can get resolved or maybe they're already addicted. Mm. Um, and so, uh, you know, those things all factor in. And then and then there's other things in terms of um, pressure to produce revenue for the hospital. You know, they get a lot more money. Uh, when they do a surgery than when they just do a consult. Um, and, you know, some of these things are, you know, there's some gray area, not always black and white. So when you have that pressure, they're going to, you know, going to get nudged over to the more invasive thing, even though that might not even be evidence-based. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, they should, they should certainly, you know, where there's evidence should be held accountable. Um, but uh, there's a lot of times where, uh, there's other factors at play and, you know, and things like, 
um, even just not even just like back surgery, there's not evidence. Um, there is, um, just randomness in terms of how many, um, opioids you'll get prescribed, say, after some surgery. Uh, you know, one person might subscribe, prescribe 30, another 60 pills, another 90. And, you know, because they're, they're pressure to, um, produce a lot of volume, they'll prescribe more just so they don't get a call back, you know, cause that's going to take them away from revenue producing things. So there's, there's a lot of different things at play, um, on that. Um, but, uh, those are some of the high level drivers. Gotcha. So, so for, for someone who's just, who's a patient who doesn't feel like they have any particular power or leverage in the situation, would you, would you advise them to challenge a doctor who prescribes certain things? Are there, you know, are there ways that we can talk to our doctors to make them look at the evidence or to justify a treatment? Or do you think that's sort of above our pay grade as consumers? No, I think there's some logical questions. There's some um, good stuff that Consumer Reports has put together. There's this Choosing Wisely program. They have this little card that's, you know, size of like a credit card that you can put in your wallet that gives you a few basic questions to ask, you know, in terms of why a test might be done and ensuring there's other options, you know, asking if there are other options available. Um, you know, I had that with our, my, our own son where he, um, you know, we thought he needed to have his adenoids out when he was younger. Um, indeed he did. Um, but we went into the ear, nose and throat back and, um, they said, yeah, we need to take a, take a look at what's going on there. We're going to order CT so we can do that. And I'm going, hmm. like, I just learned, you know, CT scan is like getting a thousand x-rays and, you know, exposure to radiation is sort of like exposure to sun, you know, when you're young, you know, it's kind of cumulative and, you know, when it's more young, there's, there's increased cancer risk, um, around that. And, uh, of course there's cost too. Um, and I just said, Hey doc, is, is there any other way, you know, you can get this without a CT scan? And he's like, Oh sure. We could scope it. You know, he literally didn't even get out of this, you know, chair, swung around, pulled the scope out of a drawer, sprayed some numbing agent up my son's nose. And, uh, you know, less than two minutes later, you know, I was, looking through the scope up his nose and I could see what was going on. And so he avoided unnecessary radiation, probably saved two or $3,000, you know, taking more time off of work, you know, those type of things that, um, just a simple question, um, you know, in, in a respectful way can uncover those things, but, you know, they may just thought, Oh, this guy's got great insurance. They don't do that. They're just the standard way. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, who knows what was all at play there. Um, but, uh, you know, those type of things are, are certainly smart questions to ask. Gotcha. Well, Dave Chase, this has been so interesting. I'm uh, I'm thrilled that this book, The CEO's Guide to Restoring the American Dream, exists, that you and I've got to say a whole a whole bunch of collaborators and inspiration um, that you mentioned. And I, and I love that you you start the book with the. Uh, with the acknowledgments and that you 
mm-hmm. you order the reader to read them all, to to not skip through that. <laughs> I, 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 th- I found that extremely refreshing and charming. Um, I was just I'm just wondering as I'm looking through it now. You mention um, in the book Anti Fragile as one of your um, the inspirations for for your thinking. And you mentioned uh, the, the phrase skin in the game. I'm wondering if you've had a chance to read Taleb's latest book, Skin in the Game. <laughs> I haven't read that, actually, no. Um, I, I'll confess, I didn't even know it was out Oh, it's yet. been out for like three weeks. Um, but but I'll, Okay, <laughs> so, no. yeah. So I'll have to take a look at that. But yeah, Taleb, he's entertaining, a little caustic, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah. I, I, I buy what he's, he's saying. Um, and uh, I, I think we need more anti-fragility built into the design of our healthcare system. Um, in a lot of ways we have, um, you know, turned all of us into, as he calls fragilistas, uh, in the way that, uh, you know, we over treat, you know, and use too many antibiotics and, you know, there's a consequence to that, that, that we all deal with. Um, so yeah, there's, there's some, some great folks that I relied on a lot, you know, as, as we talked about throughout our chat, uh, it wasn't like I just climbed to the top of some mountain and, and dreamed this stuff up. This is all proven stuff working in every part of the country, small towns, big cities, you know, private companies, public companies, um, you name it all over the place, every corner of the country. Um, and it's just a matter of like, how do we massively replicate what's going on? Uh, healthcare, it's time for it to really get relocalized. You know, you think about it, it's a fundamentally, um, local relationship, but there's all these other fingers in the pie that aren't, not only they're not adding value, they're extracting value. And so, uh, I think that's, that's going to be kind of the next era of healthcare, and uh, I think it will be a lot better than the one we have right now for not only patients, but uh, unfortunately, we have record levels of burnout and suicide amongst our nurses and doctors because we've created such a miserable system for them as well. So, you know, we can't lose sight of that. Right. Well, let, let the changes come soon. And it's it's fantastic to have you on, on the team on the right side and uh, and pushing for it as uh, as clearly and passionately and eloquently as you do. So Dave Chase, thank you so much for everything you do and for taking time on plant yourself podcast today. My pleasure and you know, anybody can go to healthrosetta.org slash friends and download a free copy of the book. Um, I just want to get the word out there. So you know, be promiscuous and sharing that that link. I don't mind people ripping it off um, and making it happen in your community. Right on. It's a it's a great read. You can get it for free right now on uh, on uh, PDF. Right. Yep. Yeah. So no 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 excuse. I I paid uh, I don't know twenty three bucks for mine. So if you can get yours for free. Good on you. So <laughs> yeah. Well, and you can you know read it read a chapter or two, and if you like it, go buy it. You know, it's up to you. Right. So support this movement. And uh, so Dave, I look forward to meeting you in uh, in D.C. in April. And uh, I guess you're, you'll be uh, on a on a panel talking about the opioid a- epidemic. I look forward to uh, shaking your hand and getting an autograph in the book. And again, thanks for everything. My pleasure. Honor to be on your show. All right. Be well. All right. What'd you think about that? Are you uh, getting your Howard Beale on from Network? Remember him? I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. 
that's kind of how I felt after reading the book. And I kind of hope it's in a, in a positive, actionable, optimistic way. It's how you feel after listening to this interview. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to Health Rosetta and Dave's book and the big heist movie. And you can find that all at plantyourself.com slash 264. So if you enjoyed it and you'd like to support the mission of the Plant Yourself podcast, the easiest thing you can do is just subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you consume podcasts. It takes just a minute and it really helps our rankings. Another way to support the show, this time with some bucks, is to become a supporter on Patreon. Just go to plantyourself.com, click on the right sidebar, the Patreon link, and you can go there and make an ongoing monthly contribution. I've been hovering around $500 for a couple of months now, which is awesome. It is nowhere near coming close to paying the bills. And I would love to double that by, let's say, 1st of July. Once again, the Big Change Program rides again. Our next bobsled run begins on May 14th, 2018. Go to wellstarthealth.com slash program to read about it and to apply. Since this episode is publishing just a day after my last episode, I don't really have any new gardening or running news, except that after publishing yesterday, I did do a nice gentle four-mile jog. Today, I'm planning on doing a little bit more strenuous six and hopefully by next week, I'll be feeling good enough to leave it all on the track or uh, on the hills as I start ramping up my uh, cardio training. Okay, we'll ride an hour. Thanks for allowing me to use Sabali Dong. Hear it? Hear the strains rising now? The Dance of Peace is the theme music for this show. Check out willridenhour.com for more. And thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons, as in... Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hadley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barris, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Volkanovsky, David Bysak, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Felton, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julian, Roland, Stu, Dolnick, Sarah Dirk, Sparrow, Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franz, Dick, Jeanette, Ben and Gila, Sarah David, Donnie, Blair, Cyber, Doran, Avila, Tio, and Carol Dargentani, Jody Friesen, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Michelle Rose, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus. Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Rath, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Amat, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burthy, Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corker, and Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, The Plant Happy Organs, Sabine Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Shell Ruthless, Jill Watt, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Ro- Rolls, uh, yeah, Linda Ayat, Julie ha- Lang, Holm Hedicardi, Zatuzin, Wakani, Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Avita Lyle, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jens, Cherry Olakowski, The Planet Earth for Help. Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Kelly Mir- Baker, Miracle, and Jesse Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, and welcoming a new contributor, Valerie Peltier, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. I'll be back on Friday with another episode. As I mentioned, I've got a huge backlog and I want to get these out into the world. And as always, be well, my friends.